Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hey everyone, this is Alvaro Jaramillo here on Life List, our podcast, and we have Molly Brown with me today. Hey everybody. Yeah, hey. George, who usually does the George part that I'm doing, I'm like the fake George today. <laughs> He's in India, so don't feel bad for George. I think he's uh, probably uh, coming back with some great stories for us. But how are you doing, Molly? I'm doing great. Yeah, it uh, it actually feels like spring here right now. So I can talk a little bit about what things have been like here. But uh, I've been outside, you know, just sitting outside working for the past five days or so, which has been a change, and it's lifted my mood a lot. It's been great. Oh, cool. Like, yeah. yeah, here, you know, coastal California, sometimes it, it doesn't, it doesn't have seasonality as much as mm-hmm. other places. Like it's spring is windy where I live is kind of always kind of cool. So it never gets, you never get like that rush of summer heat is here or something like that. So except the fall is sort of like our summer and sometimes it's t-shirt weather in the middle of the winter and sometimes it's freezing cold. So it's like really weird, but for me, it's always the, the birds, right? So mm-hmm. right now, like the robins are singing and the uh, Allen's hummingbirds are around, which are a total sign of spring. And I haven't been to the woods, but uh, I've heard that warblers have come back like Wilson's and Orange Crown. So it's, uh, it's, there's a, f- you know, for me too, it's like when the violet green swallows arrive in the neighborhood, that's, that's spring because they, they breed right here and they're, they're pretty quick. Like, so they, they're, you know, they're efficient, efficient little birds. So they, they get here and start breeding and boom, then they're gone. And it's all on mass. So they, they haven't really arrived. The other day it was warm and they were kind of around, then it cools down and they leave. I don't mm. know how that works, but swallows are cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just saw on my Facebook memories that last year I had tree swallows today. Um, and I haven't really been to the water where I'd normally see them first. Uh, I, I know they're they're creeping up through West Virginia, but same everything has just started singing like crazy yeah. here. So uh, we had, well, this was this was crazy. Uh, Friday of last week, we were out working in t-shirts. It was like sixty degrees, super warm. Saturday, we got ten inches of snow. Oh wow. And uh, yeah, and the ground froze and the temperatures were down in the teens. And then by Monday, it was back up into the 60s again. But that seemed to be when everything started coming in. So right here around the house, um, house finches and cardinals and tit mice are going crazy now. Mockingbirds oh. are all over the place. And I'm also hearing mockingbirds doing like white-eyed vireos. And one was doing some thrush chips. And I, I assume that means that they've come up. And those are my mockingbirds that have actually migrated north too because i haven't heard oh, those birds yeah. yet but they'll be our earlier migrants that that's fascinating i'd never thought that. about yeah. that like that you could you could sort of by who they're copying know if it's the same individuals that have been around or not so you're yeah it's like almost like a band you know it's like yeah. oh, the white the eyed vireo mockingbirds back you know that's yeah. cool yeah, that's yeah. always that's been my assumption anyway. I, I assume they're coming from somewhere else because it's it's a little early for vireos and things, and I, I certainly haven't heard any around here. I heard a couple mockingbirds mocking phoebes about a day before there were three phoebes around singing, and we have some phoebes that overwinter. That's not a, a yeah. There's a little bit of overlap there, but yeah, they're they're a good predictor for me, and there are a lot around where I am right here too. So it's fun to listen to them. Well, you know, I, I was I used to ponder this like when I was like a a new birder and I learned about starlings that they mm-hmm. they you know mimic and the first time you hear them doing a you know Easter meadowlark or something. And that was in a time when, you know, I wasn't around mockingbirds. So for me that was like the bird that that was like the mimic bird. And I thought, oh, you know, how about if in Alaska a starling landed and it was mimicking like a chiff chaff? You know, yeah. could you count it as a wild bird? Like, is that <laughs> enough to sort of say that starling got here from Asia or Europe or something on its own? But 
I mean, it's kind of like that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> sort of, yeah. Saying, hey, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I always think about that with Blue Jays doing red shouldered hawk calls around here too, mm-hmm. and I haven't actually looked into that outside of the red shouldered hawk range or where they're less common if the Blue Jays are mocking them as much or at all. Yeah, yeah, and um, Stellar's Jays do the same thing, and it and they they will often here do red tail hawks. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm trying to think, have I heard them do red shoulders? But yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting that that might be, you know, they always say that they're trying to basically scare away other birds from food sources. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder if uh, a bird that's, that's, that's so smart, like a jay, is just doing it for a gag. You know, <laughs> basically, you know, could be having fun with it, you know, yeah. rather than having a a reason, you know, sort of a, a, a logical kind of evolutionary reason for it. Never know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's been my fun. Uh haven't seen a brown thrasher yet, but I was hoping I'd see one before I leave tomorrow. Right. I'll be heading out for a while. Um, and they're always, you know, we have a few birds that'll slowly trickle in over the next few weeks that'll kind of get things started for migration. Yeah. Um, I was also hoping I would get an early Louisiana water thrush, but I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, They're usually gonna, last few days. Of the I was going to ask you about Louisiana water thrush. That always sort of seems to be like it is so much earlier than a lot of the other warblers and that it, you know, not mm-hmm. all, but it's sort of, and it's like a sign, like it's like, boom, you know, the, the neotropical migrants are here. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm particularly excited this year um, because my partner, Jimmy, and I got property that we closed on at the end of fall last year. Cool. He wanted property that had rocks and rhododendrons. I wanted mm-hmm. property that had woodcocks and water thrushes. So, so far we have three of the four. We've been going out and watching woodcocks and they're all over the place. And now I'm just waiting to see if we have water thrush on territory on yeah, our creek. So cool. I can't wait for that. Yeah. You know that he wants R and R and you want W and W. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which we were all happy with all four of those. But yeah, that, yeah. that was our mantra for like the year that we were looking for property is that it had to tick those. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's great. Well hopefully yeah, yeah they'll they'll come in soon and you'll you'll be successful in your quest for the, the W's. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. We've got a really nice creek that goes through the property. Um it's a little bigger than the creeks that I'm usually around and mm-hmm. the water's pretty rushing and it's really rocky and moves pretty quickly. I'm hoping that's not too big for a water thrush to have territory. So that's, that's what I'll see. Um, yeah. I feel good about it. Yeah. Uh, that's beyond my, I mean, I, I've, I never lived with Louisiana water thrushes. They were always sort of like an edge thing for me, like right at the edge of their mm-hmm. range. So I always, you know, it's 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 pretty cool to ponder that they could be there for months with you. Like for me, it was always like, wow, you know, Lisa had a water thrush, good, yeah, you know, good find, and then there was they were gone. Yeah, but yeah, um, there was only a few places in Ontario where they actually bred where I could see them in summer. But you know, mm-hmm. probably more so now with climate change. But <laughs> they're probably moving. Yeah, north. I don't I don't know much about their expansion. Um, yeah. Northern water thrush is a real treat to to see passing through and they breed in a couple places in west virginia here but oh louisiana water thrush is one of my favorite birds and mm-hmm. i i really like bird sounds and it's one of my favorite bird songs too so i want to hear them yeah. <laughs> i want to see them but i really want to hear them i can't wait have you ever you ever wondered why if there's any reason why like the louisiana water thrush uh you know sounds um um you know it oh I'm just totally blanking out on the bird. You know, the the thing looks like a worm-eating warbler down south. <laughs> Swainson's warbler. Swainson's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like a Swainson's warbler without, like, with a flurry at the end, you know. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, and yeah. I think I I think they have similar behaviors and personalities, too. I mean, they, mm-hmm. Swainson's don't do the, the bouncing thing, but I, they yeah. both seem super territorial to me and i don't have as much experience with swainsons they do breed here in west virginia but a little bit farther south um and their their habitat's similar yeah i think 
Louisiana water thrush could be found anywhere that a Swainson's is, and maybe not vice versa. But they right. both just seem like they have so much attitude, and <laughs> I love that. And yeah, they uh, they they're very similar in my mind. Yeah, they're they're sort of like um, I mean, I want to say like in the warbler family tree, the the brown warblers are all kind of the early ones, and they're more closely related to each other. So the mm-hmm. two water thrushes. Um, Swainson's worm eating and ovenbird is in there. They're all kind of like, you know, they're not amazingly closely related, but they're kind of like a group. I mean, if I remember right, but so there's some element there too of, you know, the the, the big bills and mm-hmm. sort of the the ground dwelling. You know, yeah. worm eating not not so much, but but still, it's got it's got aspects that are you know, spike bills. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Certainly closer than a lot. Where does Kentucky fall in with that? Uh, Ken- Kentucky's a, a yellow throat, essentially. It's like, in it's a yellow throat mm. group. So I think of it of, as not visually, but yeah. you know, behaviorally and covering a lot of ground on foot like that. And yeah. I guess yellow throat's not far off. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. Warblers, warblers. <laughs> boy. You know, yeah. They kind of define our continent in the way for the birder. Mm-hmm. More so than a lot of other birds, you know. I, I try to get people uh, hooked on icterids, blackbirds, saying that they're the coolest birds in North America. But people are like, "Yeah, but there's warblers." Ah, and you can't. Compete, <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot, a lot of a lot of the blackbird love is all about behavior and odd mm-hmm. oddities, while the warblers is more about just aesthetic, you know, song and look and the fact that they rush in you know to the place yeah where, you know grackles you can see all year round in a lot of places and people are like eh, grackles aren't interesting it's like well they are actually look at them <laughs> look when they're breeding and doing all their stuff it's pretty wild you know well well you know, oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's the anticipation i think that really gets me for warblers i wouldn't call them my favorite family group or anything but yeah. uh, i i might like them more in march than any other time like the month i'm waiting for them might be my yeah. favorite <laughs> time for warblers yeah no exactly i i I do think they have massive fan base, though. You know, like mm-hmm. you know, they're not quite like owls and raptors, you know, because they've got a different. But it's a different fan base. It's sort of like you know, different group of people who are who are the owl and raptor folks, and then the shorebird gull, and you know, flycatcher. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, all the hard to identify things have their fans. Yeah, but, yeah. Hey, yeah, I'd say so. Hey, Molly, you were at the San Diego uh, Festival, weren't you? I like, was, yeah. A couple of weeks ago or whatever. So yeah. what was that like? It's one of the first festivals that's sort of happening like mm-hmm. in this, I don't want to say post-COVID world, but in this late COVID world. Yeah, post-start of COVID world. <laughs> yeah. 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 So they there was a festival last year as well. It had been a few years since I've been out there. This was my second time attending. Um, and it, it went off great. I mean, it's super well organized. And San Diego Audubon is just fantastic and active and has like, you know, a massive local fan base. And then they bring a lot of people in too. So I, I think that's fun. Uh, there's a always been a really good mix of local birders and nature enthusiasts and then people who are traveling in. And, uh, yeah, so I led the same trip each day and it was sort of a local trip or a a locally based trip that was seeing local birds just really close to where the, uh, festival center was. I also did a workshop on, Mm -hmm. uh, leading bird trips and being a bird guide. So that was fun. Oh, cool. But yeah, so, uh, I, a lot of the participants that were on the, the field trips that I was leading were local, locally based and, Uh, That was fun, too. But as far as how the festival went, I think it was kind of like this last year, too. There weren't many trips where you were riding in vans, first off. So how I think that festival had typically been and, you know, how a lot of the the festivals that went to these different destinations were. um, I I think that's a shift that a few have done where you're driving yourself there to get to those. Other than that, there were vaccination requirements or daily testing requirements. Um, we sanitized like scopes if we were sharing them and that kind of thing. We 
we d- we did not wear masks when we were out. I think mm-hmm. we were wearing masks if if you were in a vehicle and if you were traveling, and if you were out on the field trips, and it, it was your discretion too when you were outside. And it was packed. I, I don't right. actually know how the numbers compared to, to past years, but I mean, field trips were selling out. Our field trip was full, uh, maybe every day. And yeah, wow. yeah, people seem to have a really great time. Yeah. I, I had no idea that, um, maybe I did. And I'd, I'd forgotten that there was sort of a, a, a version of the festival last year. I'm trying to think how they must, must've pulled that off with, with a lot yeah. of masking and, and social distancing and, and kind of de- you know, outdoor events rather than indoor events, mm-hmm. you know, would, was there any incorporation of zoom like uh, type stuff um, sort of, or, I've always wondered about this because there's an element of like the online way of presenting info to a big crowd is actually pretty cool, mm-hmm. but we're all sort of a little bit tired of it. Um, but will it sort of stay as a part of what we do and, festivals and other things like that did they do anything like that you know i i think it was minimal i think that there were maybe some lectures that were on zoom too um to my knowledge there weren't full zoom field trips and i hope i'm not wrong on that I, i really wasn't paying very close attention to that honestly um i i think that at least some of the talks and some of the options were available as virtual things um, overall, there wasn't a huge focus on that. I, I would right. say this was more of a regular festival than a, a hybrid festival, to use okay. the pandemic language. <laughs> yeah, hybrid, yeah, hybrid festival. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I know you probably so being you know a person's not always out in the West, right? Mm-hmm. What birds kind of? Here's a question: like, what bird did you see that you're like, whoa? love that thing or maybe hadn't seen it before and B what bird you'd seen before you got to see again and again and go, huh, you know, that's a pretty cool bird and didn't think about it or anything that comes up like that, just sort of maybe not those specific questions, but what sort of struck you as like, huh? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I did go out a few days before the festival actually flew into LA and I went up for condors first off and that was fantastic. So that was one I, and my flight almost got canceled and I was like flying out of a small airport here and things almost got shifted around. And I thought, Oh no, (laughs) I planned the whole like first part of this trip around seeing condors. Right. That was fantastic. Um, so those were highly anticipated and, and lived up to the hype that I had for them in my head too. But yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was just, I had a really fantastic day. The past year or so i I, honestly i haven't been birding as much as i have for the past several years i haven't done as much of just getting out and spending a few hours birding um yeah for one i i had a really nice little patch before and i've moved now and i'm kind of in a suburb and i can't just walk outside and get to a great birding trail quite as quickly Mm -hmm. there's still fun things but anyway uh, i haven't had many days where i've just gone out and gone birding all day and that was what I did when I went for the condors and I was just yeah. driving around and everything was so, you know, exciting just to kind of be out on the road and by myself and, and getting yeah. to experience all that. So as much as the condors were amazing, just having a day like that when it had been a while since I had done that was really great too. Did, did you try the trick of lying down with the ketchup all around <laughs> you? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Were you tempted? You're like, oh man, that photo I could get. (laughs) I was tempted and I did do that. So, (laughs) so that was just, uh, I had just edited our podcast episode Uh where you were talking about this too. It came out the day that I saw condors. So that was fun. But, uh, you know, I was driving around and I knew this spot. um, Oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name. It It was kind of the, I think the closest reliable spot north of LA, uh, Bitter Bitter Creek National Wildlife uh-huh. Refuge. So I had the hot spot. I knew they were out around 1030 or so. I had gone for Bell Sparrow just down in the lowlands and was getting some other stuff and was just having a great day and was kind of behind and it was warm and I was afraid they were going to take off. So I was driving up this road and I was winding and a falcon that I didn't see as I was driving by took off down the cliff that just as I was kind of rounding a turn. So I hit the brakes and I jumped out and I put my binoculars up to look for it. 
and I saw in the distance a speck. And I oh, thought wow. just the exact way that you said on the, the episode about it. As soon as you see it, you know it's a condor. I've n- yeah. I haven't seen Andy in condor, so right. <laughs> that was my first condor period. But I I knew it was. So then I had to drive and catch up to them. And there were uh, two juveniles and an adult. And I, that was just my first thought. I jumped out of the car and they were super low. They were really close. I, they might have just lifted off from somewhere. Or I don't know. Maybe they were just yeah. staying low to the ground. I laid flat on my back and <laughs> held my camera up and started taking pictures. And they, it felt like they were coming to check me out. They were they were moving slowly anyway, but they yeah. stayed right above me for a little bit. I took a couple full frame shots and then they drifted on. Yeah. And that was it. So thanks for yeah. the tip. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 like a low impact way of like you know, I think I think condors in general and people who who've you know worked with them in the conservation world, you know, in captivity, mm-hmm. they say they're they're super curious, you know, and they they're also they're you know, they have to check everything out. That's how they make mm-hmm. their living in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's not impossible they were partly like Either is that food or what? What's that lady doing? You know, mm-hmm. like, sort of like, yeah, it certainly <laughs> seemed like that. One of the juveniles kind of stayed behind with yeah. me a little bit longer too, and then caught up to the others. And it it totally struck me as curious. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, they're, <laughs> I think just a, kind of an interesting bird. At that, you get that big, and you're sort of like you really have nothing to fear. So mm-hmm. they just, you know. They just do their their own thing, and they ha- you know they go and rip up people's you know patio furniture and stuff if they mm-hmm. feel like that, that that woman that had them coming in <laughs> and it's sort of like yeah they they're just sort of um almost like the otters of the the bird world you know yeah. in some ways. like they just have time on their hands and curious clever uh, it's pretty amazing bird you know mm-hmm. i mean some people I remember in the past, some people saying, we've spent millions of dollars on trying to get these birds back. Like, is it worth it? It's like, well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's worth it. You know, we spend millions of dollars like to house the Mona Lisa and Mm -hmm. all these artworks. It's like, yeah, it's like things that we value are, are, are important. Right. Yeah. So, uh, that's cool. That sounds like, yeah. So by by the time you got to the festival, you're like, oh yeah, you know, I've I've already done what I wanted to do, (laughs) (laughs) just sort of coasting. (laughs) Uh, You know, I was, I wouldn't say dreading the festival, but I was a little, uh, just, I I was just busy and I was worried about taking off and going birding. And as soon as I got out there, um, that was kind of getting away from the the height of winter here. And I do like winter, but as soon as I got out there and I felt the, the weather and the change, I was very happy and relaxed the whole time just to... Yeah. To experience that but yeah i uh i had a couple other target birds that i had picked out that i hadn't seen um and i i just had really good luck i had a couple of days of good birding kind of mm-hmm. ticked everything off that i wanted to see um the bird that totally struck me was a lewis's woodpecker oh yeah i uh and that was that was a new one for me um and i don't know i kind of thought it would be overrated honestly and i I loved it. I thought it was yeah. great. Um, yeah, yeah. It, is, it is pretty. It's pretty amazing. Like, I like the way that they fly like crows, and like mm. you could actually sort of say, "Oh, what's that funny looking crow?" Like they don't undulate like most woodpeckers. Mm-hmm. But, but then you know, there's sort of like the western counterpart of the red-headed woodpecker. Like they don't mm. look alike, but if you start thinking about it, there, there's similarities into what they do and hanging out in sort of tr- dead trees, you know, and yeah. like catching, you know, I, I remember redheaded woodpeckers would do that kind of thing every so often. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, and I don't even know, like do redheaded woodpeckers undulate when they fly or do they just kind of go? Yeah. It's been too long. Yeah. I don't, I don't see them often at all either. Yeah. Yeah, I'm picturing an undulating flight. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lewis's are cool. They're so shiny, like that when they hit oh, the light, yeah. and you're like, "Whoa!" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were great. I I had fun tracking that down too. Um, I just saw a spot on eBird where one had been reported a couple times, and uh, I don't even know where I was. I was sort of in a little 
suburb somewhere between LA and San Diego that had one of those things that I feel like is such a a California thing to me where you've got this like this little housing development or something and then you have this incredible trail network right behind it that yeah maybe it's just the locals who live there I don't know maybe more people so I was just back in that it was raining and uh it was mixed in with a bunch of acorn woodpeckers and was very unhappy with them yeah so that that was my experience getting to watch it but it was it was really cool yeah no that's yeah woodpeckers they've got their fans too Big fan well, of yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they do. Yeah. And then, then there's the uh, ivory build people, but it's different. <laughs> <laughs> They're like the UFO people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know if ivory build people, that might be separate from the woodpecker people. Maybe right, there's overlap. Right. Maybe there's not, but yeah. that's a whole nother group, I think. And I'm not saying the ivory build isn't out there, but just show me the proof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What else yeah. has been going on? Well, I uh, like I said, I'm getting ready to head out and do just a little bit of a trip, um, which is actually a couple things for fun. Um, also, on behalf of the birding co-op that mm-hmm. I'm, you know, involved in, and uh, I'm going down and meeting with Osa Birds. Actually, we're uh, we're setting up some uh, plans for the future and getting some tours lined up to visit them in Costa Rica. Um, on the way, I'm stopping in El Salvador for a few days and doing some birding there, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I don't totally know what to expect yet, but I, I, I like birding under birded places and I would say that it's pretty under birded. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty under birded. Definitely. We, we had a trip like a few years ago that Peter, Burke led to Nicaragua. There's another mm. country that mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, it was during a window where it was sort of possible to go there. I think it's gotten a little more, you know, problematic politically mm-hmm. now, but I might be wrong that it was, uh, yeah, I've, I've never, I think I've been to the, to the airport in El Salvador a few times. I've never actually been to the country. <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly it. The airport has I think I've been to the airport too and I haven't been outside of the airport. Um but it's a a major airport and there's a lot of stopovers. So yeah. uh there are a couple groups that are putting together tours of different lengths. I'm spending 5 days there, but oh, wow. they're really excited about using that as like a stopover place to to do some birding and I I'm going to have a totally different set of species than I'll have in Costa Rica too. Right. So that'll be fun. There's yeah, there's a lot of, of division there. Yeah, it's like the northern Central American fauna rather than the southern. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's yeah. It sounds like fun. Well, let us know how that goes. I'm heading this evening. I'm heading off to Cuba. Believe it or not. So like, oh, today, right. Today is like this. I mean, probably like you. It's the day of getting all these things done. That you're mm-hmm. you you know not that I haven't been doing things the last few days, but I've just had a lot to do to organize trips in the future and other things online um, work with, uh, you know, uh, burning your best life and all that. So it's, uh, I, I think when I'm on the plane, I'll have this like relief because it's sort of like what's done is done. What isn't yeah. done isn't done. And it's like, okay, you know, now I focus on the birders and the birds in Cuba. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a surprise for, the group that I'm meeting with in El Salvador, but I'll be there before this comes out. But we're taking some optics down too that came from the co-op optics drive. Oh, so cool. I've got to get those packed and I, I'm excited for that. And we've done that for a few groups uh, to just support their initiatives and get optics to people who are interested in birding so that they can do good things with them. Um, yeah. But yeah, I also have laundry running while we're recording and I'm <laughs> doing yeah. all of that too. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like it, yeah, but you, I mean, I think... I don't know if it's harder for you to pack or harder for me to pack because I know that you take like the, just the little bag, you know. (laughs) I do. You know, so you probably have everything all set. Like I'm more like, oh man, you know, should I take three pants or four pants? And then it's like, (laughs) oh, you know, it's it's sort of like a, I don't have like, I have a checklist of what I need to do. But within that, there's like a realm Mm. of possibilities. I Mm -hmm. imagine you've got it like no possibilities. You already have like you know set up what you what you're gonna put in your your t- 
tiny, tiny, small bag. <laughs> well, I think that my trick is I just really procrastinate until the very last minute, and then I just yeah. don't have time to put much in the bag. I certainly don't feel prepared, but I know I'm not taking much. I'm flying um, Avianca, too, which is a Colombian airline. So they yeah. have a hub in El Salvador. I don't yeah. know how uh, stringent they are on their their carry-on sizes. I do need to check that. I know some of those places aren't. Some of those airlines outside of the u.s care a little bit more so we'll see how that challenge plays out right yeah you'll you'll be fine yeah Yeah. (laughs) well how long will you be in cuba are are you leading one tour there is that the yeah yeah so it's a 10-day trip but i arrive Mm -hmm. a day early Mm -hmm. we we were mainly in i would call it sort of the 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 classic cuba tour and that we're not doing the very far east which is quite far, actually. Mm. So we go to the west and uh, Zapata Peninsula, and also Camagüey, which is relatively far east, but you know enough to to see some interesting things, but not way out east. I, I've been to Cuba, you know, a bunch over the years, mm-hmm. and it's I now have this like almost like need. I want to go see the big mountains in the east. Like there are big mountains out there and I've just never seen that. So one day we'll, you know, maybe we'll find the ivory woodpecker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or at least a Cuban kite, you know. But uh yeah, there's there's stuff out there that's still almost nobody goes to to look at. So is that an access challenge? Um it is to some extent like you can, you know, Santiago de Cuba is a big city that's way out east and you can fly in there with, used to be able to fly in there with an American, you know, based mm. airline. Now mm-hmm. all the airlines go to Havana from the US, so you can't get out there. So traveling all the way out there is is long. Um, it's not as small a con- country as you think on the map. It's pretty big. and the. Um, you could fly internally, but I got to say, like, just I'm not keen on flying on, you know, a local airplane that's, you know, might be yeah. like an old Russian <laughs> kind of, you know, Tupolev or something, you know. Uh-huh. And, uh, so I, I, I'm not, yeah, don't, and I don't want to put clients in a situation where it's like I'm not comfortable with. So, so first, I'm going to have to scout that one day with, with friends or by myself or some something, but there are all mm-hmm. these other things out there that are interesting, like all the colorful land snails. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures no, of them. Like Cuba has this wide assortment of these amazing land snails that have colors and stripes and so forth, and they're mostly in the east. Like you don't see them much in the in the west. Like I, I've hardly seen any in. That I'm not sure why that is. If they're, it might be that they're collected, you know, for mm. might be a, a that kind of conservation issue. But I just mm-hmm. that, that's all interesting, and also the the there's this some mammals too that are unusual and endemic that would be cool to try and see out out in the far sort of east and yeah, yeah it'd be it'd be interesting one day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How often do you run tours to Cuba? Well, pre pre pandemic, it was sort of one or two a year we would do. Mm-hmm. So, and it's it's I wouldn't say complicated, but you have to abide by a certain set of guidelines and rules at the State Department and the the well, you know, the gov- the U.S. government um, has laid out and places you're not allowed to stay and kind of that kind of thing and things yeah. that you can cannot do um based on the the structure of rules it it goes up and down it was actually much much more open during the obama years and then it it got much more difficult during the trump years and the biden years have not loosened up anything from the trump mm-hmm. sort of uh, era so we always we're always thinking that you know maybe you know there's going to be a president who's just going to say oh enough with this you know it's not working yeah let's uh, let's engage people engage the uh, country rather than you know have these sort of half-hearted um, yeah 
weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So if I, as an individual, want to visit Cuba, can I book a flight and go visit Cuba and go drive around and go birding right now? Um. That's a good question. I I would say <laughs> there's probably a way to do it if you're sort of saying that you're going as a support of the Cuban people, but it might mm-hmm. be that you're you need to be in an organized group mm-hmm. to do so. Like, um, it used to be you could just go through and they they would call these people of people licenses, mm-hmm. and and now it's it's a little harder. But you can definitely buy a ticket and you can say you're doing something, but it's whether you ever get, you know, you come back to the country and they realize that you didn't do what you said you were going to do, which was whatever, the, yeah. the legal, you know, reason you were there. And, and ironically, the birding trips are considered part of the humanitarian projects because within the humanitarian projects, um, the State Department has defined a set of environmental projects. So if you're actually gathering data, you know, and then sending that data to Cuban scientists and international bodies, then you're you're sort of doing a project. And in fact, a lot of the stuff we've over the years, you know, seen and uh, documented has mm-hmm. gone into the you know brand new field guide to Cuba, and there's like a you know, another checklist of the birds of Cuba and it's all, it's all in there. So it's like, you know, it really is sort of legitimate. Uh, A lot of people used to do sort of just straight tourism and that's Mm -hmm. not allowed in Cuba from the U S government perspective. You you know, you're not supposed to be just a tourist in Cuba. So you're supposed to be doing something and ours is an environmental project. So Mm -hmm. we always work with local, um, ornithologists and so on get, yeah. get all the info and trying to actually at the, you know I, I have over the years i've been recording eastern metal arcs down there and mm. that's another yeah. side project trying to trying to make uh the case that they're different enough that they don't understand eastern metal arcs from the u.s and canada that they should be considered a different species so I do playback type mm-hmm. experiments and it's interesting mm. they don't they don't react to like a, a regular Eastern metal arc. They, wow. Do they sound yeah. similar? They sound similar, but mm-hmm. enough to say, oh, Eastern metal arc, but you're like, well, that's a weird one, you know? Yeah. And they look and, weird. They're little. They're little uh, and stumpy, you know, short, mm-hmm. kind of odd. And non-migratory. I'm non-migratory. Guessing, yeah. yeah. Huh. But yeah, lots, lots cool. going on in Cuba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you've just gotten back fairly recently from your past few trips, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the bir- <laughs> birds and wine and and Chile and Argentina, which is always a good trip. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always fun because it's it's a little bit low key. Like we're we're making sure we we have time to eat and mm-hmm. drink wine and talk about culture and talk about people, not just birds. And then we do two little sort of little small sections of Chile and a little small section of Argentina. So we have two countries, two countries, one tour, and they're different in their environment, one side of the Andes versus the other side of the Andes, as well as their winemaking. And it's funny how it all kind of ties in together, like the environment and the birds, endemics on both sides, and also sort of like endemic winemaking <laughs> type. So different, um, different types of um, the way that the culture and also the local environment has shaped the food and wine. So it's, it's a pretty cool trip. People yeah. always come out of it going, wow, I want to do that again. <laughs> well, that's a trip you sell with just the, the name of it. <laughs> you yeah, don't have to say much else. <laughs> I know. This trip, I mean, sort of like, you know, you're describing the San Diego festival. This for me was like, the last trip I did when COVID was suddenly mm. a huge deal, like where we sort of, I think I got out on the last American Airlines flight out of Santiago back to the US before the country just shut everything down. So it was like, we just squeezed in that trip last, you know, two years ago. And then it was the first trip that where 
we're good. We went back two years later and it was, it was interesting to, to sort of feel like, yeah, you know, like success, we're back. Like, cause yeah. two years ago, we didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, we had no idea if, and, and the fact that it's, it's moved along that you can actually do this trip again and the complexity of it, like two countries sort of flight, um, two different sets of rules, testing everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't know if I've been tested <laughs> more. I mean, it seems <laughs> like I've got tested more than at exam week, you know, like. Yeah. Sort of like <laughs> oh, yeah. I know what you mean. It's like testing everywhere, but yeah. it worked. Would you say that overall the trip was a similar experience than what it was two years ago? Yeah. Yeah, I think. I think um, the the only thing about like the the testing that it it creates is sometimes just this anticipation of in people's sort of the back of their mind is like things could really go south here if mm-hmm. the test is positive, right? Like you have this potential for things to to really go to a different direction. And I think if you if you just sort of put yourself in the mindset of like, well, I mean, I'm not going to worry about anything unless it happens, right? Or, it, you know, as, as a tourist yeah. goes, obviously, as a tour operator, you have, you know, some kind of contingency plan in your head somewhere, or, or, or maybe you don't, mm-hmm. but you, know, <laughs> you, you, you at least pretend you do. But uh, <laughs> do you, <laughs> the, I do think that that does affect people to some extent. So if you can sort of sit, you know, navigate through it in a way that makes people feel like it's all going to be okay. We just have mm-hmm. to go to this spot, get this test and, and be done with it. And, um, and, and also I think from a tour operator's perspective, finding the places that will test you and have the information ready for you really quickly and super easy and to somebody's email and all those things that later people say, wow, that was actually pretty, you know, easy is, yeah. is key, right? You don't yeah. want to. I guess that's like the highest compliment you can get as a tour operator. Right yeah. Now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I think that's key. Like, so people realize, oh, I mean, he really thought about, or they really thought about what they were doing here, who they chose and why we went there versus some other place. And, mm-hmm. and so there's like keeping your ear to the ground on that. What, you know, what was really weird from my perspective, of these two countries is that the Chileans had this incredibly um, robust system of like, you have to create this online account. You have to oh, yeah. put all of your information in there, all of your, um, vaccine info and somebody actually looks through it and, and okays it. And then you get like your form is given the okay. And it's, it's fully valid as a pass that you can use within the country. Once you've arrived in the country and you take a test there and then, then they, they will, when they get the info that that test was negative, then your pass is completely valid and you can go everywhere and you show it at all these restaurants and people actually ask for it, which is mm. interesting. Like they want to see the the test. There's every restaurant has a um, thermometer, like getting people's temperatures Oh yeah, and everywhere. And, and I think that they've just sort of downgraded the, the number of steps you have to do. But if you think about it, we were tested in the U S to get on the plane then just a day or so later, we're tested again in Chile to get the pass okayed. Then you test again to go to the next country, and then you test to go back to the U.S. It's like a lot of different elements that you sort of have to facilitate. But in Argentina, on the other hand, they didn't have like this really serious online thing, you know, and you didn't have to wait for a test once you got in there. Once you once you flew in, you were set much less mask use over mm-hmm. there. And mm. they were way more on the slope of like, we're kind of done with this. And oddly enough, the COVID rates in Chile were higher than in Argentina, because I think Chile had had such a big, you know, they closed things down, you know, almost 
like some countries in Asia really, really yeah. took it seriously. And just like some of the countries in Asia, they're like getting the Omicron wave has been harder on them than some of the countries that mm-hmm. were a little bit more loose mm-hmm. because I think people got infected essentially in Argentina and in parts of Europe. Uh, so it was odd to go to these two countries that have really different COVID rates, really different structures of how they dealt with it. And um, it was definitely great to go to the more tightly controlled country first and then the more loosely controlled country because it really felt like you were progressing through this, like, oh, th- you know, things are really getting better <laughs> you know, in terms of yeah. the COVID. And the birds were awesome too. I, you know, I want to talk about <laughs> oh, yeah. COVID the and whole the time, but, but yeah, the <laughs> wine was super. But I think a lot of people are interested in hearing what travel's like. Mm-hmm. At this point, and it doesn't really affect you if you sort of have it all planned, mm-hmm. or if you have people yeah. that planned it for you, or whatever. Right, having people that plan it for you <laughs> certainly yeah. helps too. I mean that that sort of sounds chilly sounds like how Hawaii sounded for us last year, where you have right. a separate thing that you filled out the form on, um, yeah. and that kind of thing. It it occurred to me fairly recently that I am not on an organized trip for. Uh, El Salvador and Costa Rica, and I do have to figure this all out on my own. Right. Um, both of them have no requirements, no testing, wow. nothing. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it feels like there's got to be a catch. <laughs> yeah. Um, which yeah, is making me nervous even talking about this. I might run over and get myself a rapid test just to, yeah. <laughs> just to have it as backup. I know. But, I, uh, I, yeah. One thing I've, I've, I think I might have even mentioned it on one of the past podcasts is those those things you can do to get back into the US, the mm-hmm. online like um it's a testing like it's a it's a home test that you actually have somebody online watch you do it and then mm-hmm. they officially give it the okay that you did it properly so you're not cheating essentially. Those have been really great on tours because you, you have this window of 24 hours to get your test, and often we're in the middle of nowhere. So as long as you have internet, you can do one of these, and then you 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 get the results immediately, you know, 15 mm-hmm. minutes, and you're set to go to get on the plane back home. And I, I think they've been really good, but, you know, yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I thought about that and you did say that before because i woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking oh man i don't have this prepared and i I wish we would have recorded this a week ago so i could have ordered one of those because i do have to have a test to get back in the u.s yeah yeah and then um for other places like when i went to uganda in december we needed tested but we got tested when we got off the plane there and that was nice because i knew that was built in and i wasn't going to leave the airport without the test to go back to the u.s I'm just building in an extra four hours to arrive at the San Jose airport when I go to leave and yeah. take a test yeah. there. Yeah. Cause you, you're only required to do a, you can do a rapid test to get back into, you know, to the U S so you don't have to do the PCR mm-hmm. longer tests. You know, you can just do an antigen test. Yeah. Um, my guess, I mean, I'm th- I was thinking they were going to move that change that pretty soon but i've been thinking that for weeks now but <laughs> yeah i was i was thinking the same it's you know 12 days before i'm flying back home maybe yeah. by then though something will have changed but uh <laughs> yeah i don't know yeah. we'll see like, you know one of the one of the coolest things though you know we in in the birding and the food is that we have like two days that are wine days fully like food and wine we we have our binoculars with us, but and sometimes mm-hmm. we'll see a bird or two like that will be new for the trip. But in essence, we go to to do wine tastings, and then usually, and we'll have like lunch at a really good restaurant, like mm-hmm. you know, in Argentina and in Chile. And in Chile this this year, the Chilean side, we were at Montes, which is a great you know wine um, maker, and they have this restaurant that's run by um, this guy, well, the chef is Francis Mullman, who's like this really mm-hmm. famous, you know, Argentine chef. Yeah. And he has restaurants around, right? But he's sort of known as like the fire guy, like he's grilling with wood and, you know, smoking things and fish and meats. And it's mm-hmm. very much like he sort of lives in Patagonia and he's, like, although he's trained in 
Paris, whatever, he just sort of took the grilling gaucho kind of world and made it into this way he sort of deals with food, right? So we're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, it's like, going to go and um, try this out because it was the first time we'd ever been there. And there's TV shows about him and he's on Chef's Table. And so I, you know, yeah. highly yeah. recommend it. So we go there and we're like ordering and stuff. And then he shows up, like, because these guys are <laughs> never at their restaurants, right? Like, they, they have well, yeah. <laughs> and he comes over and he starts talking to Ricardo, my co guide. And I look, I'm like, oh my God, you know, that's, like, <laughs> that's Francis Mullen, you know? And I, I, I sort of like without, I do that one of like the, the finger pointing, you know? I, <laughs> like people are talking about birds or whatever. I said, hey, everyone. Drinking their wine, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, look at this. And they are suddenly like, <gasps> you know, all the cameras go up, you know? It's like, it was like, like a movie star or something. Wow. And he, he just sort of said, this is what I recommend, you know? And it was like the flank steak or something uh-huh. or something that, that, he recommended, and I, and it's funny because uh, Ricardo was I was really bummed that he didn't <laughs> think of something to say because he's also Ricardo's from Patagonia as well, from the Chilean side of Patagonia, and one of the things that Francis Malman has been really keen on is stopping the mass sort of um, farm salmon that's going on in the South, which is, has a lot of negative implications for the environment and so forth. Mm -hmm. So he's been very keen on like, as a chef saying like, we shouldn't be doing this to our environment with these farmed salmon, you know, everybody loves salmon, but it's a little bit too much. So, and all the later we're replaying, Oh, we could have said about (laughs) this, or maybe ask him if he likes birds or, but you just start sitting there like an idiot going like, Oh my God, you know, taking (laughs) pictures rather than engaging it's, he's just a human, right? Uh, like actually, well, if, right? Yeah. If you just converse. You might actually, you know, who knows? He might sit down and want to talk about birds, but instead, we <laughs> acted like, you know, starstruck uh, individuals. But that lunch was one of the best lunches I've had in my life. It was. Oh great. wow! Did you get the flank <laughs> steak? Yeah, yeah, I got. That. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Oh, so much and, fun. I know. Lots of birds, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And lots of birds. <laughs> lots of birds. That's what got us there. Go well, for the birds, exactly. stay for the food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all you need. So are, what's tourism like? Like, what's the pace like? Were the restaurants filled? And yeah, how was that? Um, yeah, they were definitely... It, it seemed like people were out and about and it's middle of, I mean, the end of summer for them, like it was sort of school was about to start uh-huh. and yeah. people were out on the beach and they were the, you know, the restaurants were hopping. Um, everything was kind of ticking along and all the, the bus, you know, drivers, operators and stuff were all telling us that things have feel like they're back to normal in terms of the volume mm. of clients and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the flight to Mendoza was full. Yeah, I mean, it's weirdly normal, except everybody's wearing a mask, right? Like everybody's yeah. wearing a mask and people are asking you for your temperature or whatever. But once you are in to a restaurant, you sit down, your mask comes off, you start eating. It just feels normal, like, mm-hmm. and and low risk, you know, like the, uh, um, it, it it's definitely, obviously, with anything we do, there's always a risk, but it really feels like we're getting back to the levels of risk in in, in travel that are sort of normal, you know, mm-hmm. or baseline. And we'll see yeah. if that sticks. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that personally. That's how I'm feeling as well. And it, especially in the group travel with the testing and everything, as much as it's a hassle, I kind of like knowing that we all have the same baseline of assurance that yeah. we're doing everything we possibly can to yeah. make it low risk. Right. Yeah. And, and I imagine that helps too with just the group uh, confidence and in, in going forward with a trip and not worrying about what could go wrong quite as much. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I also travel with sort of uh, home tests, like, you know, quick mm-hmm. tests. And I always feel like, you have that tool to sort of, you know, if you feel weird or whatever, you know, is it a cold? Is it not a cold? You know, that kind of thing. You don't want to be guessing. Mm-hmm. You want to you want to be able to sort of make the right 
decisions if if something happens. But I do think it's uh, we've gone sort of past the the. It seems to me like the the worst part of it, and now we're going to be living with this sort of lower level but always constant situation. I mean, I hate to say because you know we were we were saying for a long time it's not the flu, but eventually this will become like the flu, more like you know it still yeah. is really dangerous for a lot of people. It's still a major thing, but we will probably have to have a shot every year. And and know that there's riskier times and riskier situations. You know, we always know winter, you know, fall, winter's flu season. It's going to be like that. And um, I think we're kind of getting there. And even with these new variants that are coming out and stuff, they're still sort of in the same line of being highly transmissible, but lower in, in you know, how they make you sick. Um, mm-hmm. But everybody should get vaccinated <laughs> you know like it's even if it's becoming less common that if you have never been vaccinated if you've never had the disease you're mm-hmm. you will yeah. get it and, <laughs> yeah. and you don't want it to be bad so so vaccinate please yeah. everybody <laughs> i'm sure we have a high vaccination crowd listening to us but tell that crazy uncle of yours get vaccinated yeah <laughs> Yeah. Well said. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, that's still what I see around here locally. It's, it's the unvaccinated populations that are getting hit now and it's really sad and it's not changing. Um, And that's just it. And like you said, with, with the development of the virus and with the, whatever variants come out, a vaccine's always going to be a better defense than not having it right exactly um hey you know i wanted to i'll change the subject for a bit Mm -hmm. i wanted to talk about this i just saw this yesterday and it and i was reading about it today these black swifts now i think we we talked about how crazy black swifts are and the swifts that fly around all all winter long yeah well they they just like some folks published a study using these, what they call multi-sensor data loggers, which means that they're actually telling you where the bird is, but also telling you like the temperature, the pressure, all these other things about what's going on and the elevation they're at. And they can actually figure out how high the birds are flying. And so these black swifts, they, you put these transmitters on them somewhere like in the Rockies and then they fly south to Ecuador mm-hmm. and they are, they found they're flying eight months of the year nonstop. Some of them like will have like a day where they take a break, but some of them don't. Eight months nonstop, always flying. Don't touch the ground. That's crazy. It's right? absolutely That's crazy. crazy. But they, <laughs> The even crazier part is that they realize that they're flying at different elevations in the day than at night, depending on the moon. So in the day, they're up there, they're pretty high up, you know, but still kind of, you probably could see them with binoculars. And then if there's a full moon, like they go up to like up to 4,000 meters in in height. So, you know, <laughs> multiply that by three to get yeah you know feet or uh roughly like they they go pretty high yeah and in in full moons and in in when there's no full moon they actually stay relatively low and what was weird is they had a full moon day when or full moon night where there was a a lunar eclipse and the mm-hmm. birds actually dropped down in elevation during the eclipse like it's as if the full moon allows them to go up higher and they think they're actually feeding at night on high elevation insects, which they they think is a you know they know that there's actually there are insects up there because um, free tail bats mm-hmm. are feeding on insects at that elevation, and uh, these birds are then feeding, flying all day and all night, feeding in the day and sometimes feeding at night and shifting their elevation depending on the moon in order to track food, which I thought was crazy. Then 
the yeah. other thing, it's like reading this, like every every bit of this thing is sort of like, you know, and there's more, you know, like each each page of this was like, they. it turns out Swifts are really long lived for their size. And like hmm. one of their Swifts was 17 years old. And, and then it like, it, I thought like, wow, 17 years old. Like if you calculated the eight months flight out time? of the 12, yeah. lifetime, like how much yeah. of their life, how many years in the air these birds are at? I, yeah. I, it just, it's like, wow. Like, I don't think anybody, can you imagine like Charles Darwin or some of the early <laughs> biologists or whatever, even, you know, even, I don't know. Roger Tory Peterson or somebody more recent, if you told them this, like, you know, if you had a time machine to say, guess what? Black Swifts, they fly around. He'd be like, <laughs> no, no way. There's absolutely no way. That's, that's absolutely impossible. Like there were arguments even in the seventies that a Blackpool warbler could never have flown across <laughs> the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. That was yeah. impossible. And now yeah. we're finding, I was blown away. But yeah. The moon thing. Swifts are cool. <laughs> they don't look like much, but they're pretty cool. <laughs> no, they're, they're pretty cool. Okay, I've I've not read this paper. So this was all black swifts in the study. Black swifts, yeah. Huh. And I thought I was just kind of like, uh, yeah, trying to get, you know, just I, I read it because you know it came up on one of my friends, you know, uh, Facebook thing, and then I was mm-hmm. like, my gosh, this is crazy, and also like. To contemplate that little tiny thing that you can stick on a bird now that tells you all that information, yeah. that, you know. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I, I think the technology that's happening right now is pretty outstanding. Um, there was there was also a tracking of broadwing hawks where they you put these little transmitters that co- connect up to like they download the data to the cell phones towers. Mm-hmm. So when they were in South America, these hawks were way far away from any system that you could get info from. But what's cool is like when they start migrating north, like a few days ago, one of these broadwings suddenly hit the the system, the cell phone tower system down in Central America, I think probably like in Panama. Yeah. And suddenly all the data was downloaded, you know. And right, because it's backtracking everywhere that it's stored, right? right? And yeah, then it downloads stored. when it goes through. <laughs> so could, I was thinking like for the biologist, it must be like Christmas, you know, suddenly <laughs> like the computer's like going ding, 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 you know, with all these yeah. like records and like, and then the map it suddenly and go, oh my gosh, you know, this, this bird's been here or there or whatever doing this or that. And um, it's heading back to, they they named this bird. I uh, what was the name of it? Um, Charlotte two point zero, <laughs> and she's on the, her way back to Muskoka, which is in Ontario by Georgian the Georgian Bay part of Hudson, um, um, Lake Huron. So yeah, um, uh, is that tracking info online and accessible to to follow? Uh, yeah, there's there's a Facebook group called the Broadwing Hawk Project. Project. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's, and they're that's where it is. They they uh they posted it, and it's from Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. Mm-hmm. So they're, I don't know. I love this stuff. I don't. I don't know why, it it gives me such amazing pleasure to understand what a single bird does. Like, oh yeah, you know, kind of like your your like our mockingbirds. Birds, yeah, you know? yeah. Like it's and you think and you and then to think like it could be the same one you know, year mm-hmm. after year that comes in. It's just cool to know what these birds are up to and then put together these big picture and conservation, you know, level sort of answers. But yeah, just oh, knowing yeah. that one bird does something like that. Yeah, the the repetition. I, I love seeing examples of a specific bird where you can see, um, which in general, um, you know, that is something where it's like an oddball bird and it keeps coming back. Like we've, we've talked about in a lot of cases on the podcast, but then you have the tracking and you don't need to have some sort of weird feature that allows you to identify the bird to know that it's the same individual. Yeah. You just, you just follow them. Yeah. No. And I mean, we, social media, there's all sorts of stuff. People, you know, 
But every so often you get these cool things from social media where you're like, wow, you know, I would mm-hmm. never have known this, you know, if somebody hadn't shared it. So mm-hmm. I'm glad these projects that are, they're being, you know, quick with getting their sort of rough information out or, or people sharing published papers and that kind of thing. It's just um, fantastic because there's just so much going on and you can't, you almost need your, your peer group to sort your of network, help you yeah. through the yeah network. It's it's great. Yeah, um, I I wouldn't be seeing any of that really. You know, I I'm interested, and especially these papers and reports. I I don't have a, a immediate reason in my life to get that information. So that's a yeah. really big positive for social media for me. It's just seeing what knowledge is existing and evolving and how it's yeah. happening. Yeah, and and who's involved and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I I. Uh, I'm always, I'll give the information of what's going on, but I, I should be more, We on the show notes, we should put down who actually did this work because, you know, I did not write it down and it's important to uh, give give the uh, compliments and <laughs> to the folks that actually yeah, put in very all much. hard work. We can work. link the paper. <laughs> yeah, we can link the paper. But hey, I think we're, we're, we're right up on our time where we have to pack. That's it. <laughs> and get the laundry out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm still going to be putting it off. I'm going to go sit outside and look for walking birds, have a drink, and do it 30 minutes before I have to leave. But yeah, I'll well, say I'm doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I got a bunch of stuff to do, but I'm good. I always try to like pack, pack first, then you don't have to worry about it. Then I, I always that sounds I nice. Up- <laughs> I, I pack like a third, then I still have yeah. to worry about it. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> well, have a great trip to Cuba. Yeah, you two have a great trip, and thanks yeah. for filling us in on what you've been up to. And um, guess what? Next time we'll probably be talking to George about India and all that too. So, um, and everybody, please keep sending us your suggestions or ideas or comments i know you know we tackle a lot of different totally different subjects from we do yeah you know from yeah travel to dead lane discovering new species so yeah it's uh let us know what else we could be talking about too (laughs) perfect (laughs) all right bye-bye bye thanks everybody (laughs) 